in the story of Nehemiah, and we're looking for wisdom from God as we as a church are looking ahead and considering how it is we could and how it is we should attempt great things for God as we expect great things from him using William Carey's provocative words there. Just to give you 30 seconds on where Nehemiah fits into the big picture again. Um, Quick recap, God chooses a people for himself and plants them in the land of Israel and he lives among them in the temple in the middle of Jerusalem but his people refuse to obey him and after warning, after warning, he sends them out into exile. But in his mercy, God has promised a return from that exile. He's promised to bring them back after 70 years. And that return has happened, uh, astonishing as it seemed. Uh, A remnant of Israel is back in Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt, but it is a million miles from the glory days of Israel. And this is where Nehemiah comes in. And last week and the week before, we thought about who he was and what's brought him to this point. He's an exiled Jew. Uh, He's the cupbearer to the king. Pretty significant position. He's risen through the ranks. And he's interacting with the greatest ruler in the world at the time, the king of the Persian Empire, which is absolutely vast. He asks an incredible thing. He asks to be allowed to go back and rebuild this city of Jerusalem. And he asks to do it with the king's money and with the king's things, with the king's protection, with the king's help. He was gripped, right? He prayed. He wasn't just praying. He was planning while he prayed. And then he pushed to get things started like we saw last week. Remember, it was terrifying even after he prayed so much, even after he prepared so well, it was still terrifying for him to just push it over the hill. But he got an amazing response, and now the ball is rolling, and that's where we picked up the story in tonight's reading. He arrives back in Jerusalem. I want us to concentrate on a key turning point in this story, uh, in what we read. So come back to chapter 2 and verse 17 with me and watch what happens here. Nehemiah addresses the Jewish remnant that have returned like this. He says, you see the trouble we're in. Uh, Jerusalem lies in ruins. Uh, Its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I want us to think about this for a minute and put ourselves into the story. Uh, Imagine being in the crowd listening to Nehemiah when he comes to speak, right? Now, Jerusalem has been in ruins by this point for about 140 years. 140 years is basically forever. Let me give you a sense for how long 140 years feels like. So if something has been this way for 140 years, how, how far ago is that? Well, that is... That's before the First World War. It's way before the First World War. That's, that's before the telephone. That's before the light bulb, right? That's before television. That's before the internet. Amazing. There was a time before the internet. Jerusalem has been a ruin forever. This is like ancient history. It has always been this way. It has absolutely always been this way. There is not a soul alive who remembers it any other way. And some guy swans in and notices for everyone, oh, hey, uh, did you see? The, the, the city's ruined, you know. Duh. Well, thanks, kid. That's, that's really observant because none of us 
had actually noticed that. What a real surprise. The gates have been burned with fire, you say. Oh, really? We thought it was woodworm, but you know, really appreciate the insight. Come on, let's rebuild the wall. Well, sure, I'm sure we can fit that into, I don't know, our coffee break this afternoon, perhaps. I mean, it's not like we're doing anything else out here, right? As we struggle to get by, as we struggle to survive, finally, we've got the brilliant idea. That brilliant idea, we could rebuild these walls. We've been stumped for years trying to figure out what to do with all those fallen down stones, and now you've told us, rebuild the wall. Brilliant. Can you, can you picture the scene a little bit more now? Okay, with this remnant, seeing things the way they've just always been. Some newcomer swans in and says, come on, let's totally rebuild. Can you imagine just how cynical that crowd would be? It's even worse than that, actually, because they've tried it before and it's failed. There is pretty much nothing on earth as powerful a defeater as, yes, we tried that before. Uh, if you haven't heard that line, you haven't tried to do very much yet. Oh, we tried that before and it didn't work, right? They've tried this before. It didn't work. The walls have been down forever. It's not going to work now. The walls are down. Face it, pal. They're down, and they're just going to stay that way. It doesn't matter if some newcomer shows up. They're down, and they're staying. It is never, never going to be any different here. Are you feeling the cynicism there must have been in that crowd? I think there are enough Scots in this room. It's our great national strength, cynicism. Imagine how disillusioned they would be. Imagine how apathetic they must be about the situation. Imagine how hopeless it must seem, how resigned they've got to feel to that just being the way it is. But look down at verse 18. How do they respond? Let's start rebuilding. Oh, come on. Surely this is a fairy tale, right? This is not the sort of thing that... Act, couldn't you believe that sort of thing actually happens? And then Owen courageously read us through the whole of the third chapter, listing about 40 different sections of the war and the people who rebuilt them. And the, the key thing that should strike us from that whole chapter is that it's not one or two zealots, right? It's not that Nehemiah convinced his mate Bob and Crazy Jim to join in rebuilding the wall. It's, it's everybody, Right? There's all manner of people from all walks of life involved in building that. In fact, it's so close to everyone. The thing that stands out is the one guy who wouldn't join in. In verse 5, the nobles of Tekoa who wouldn't put their shoulder into the work. Everyone's up for it. Everyone gets busy. Rulers, priests, perfumers, Levites, merchants, daughters, sons. One speech. And everyone's in. How is it? How is it that something so utterly unchangeable, something seemingly completely immovable, can suddenly get changed? I think there are a few keys in the text um, that give us some insight. There's some, some wonderful common sense, frankly, and here there's some good management disciplines and practices. There's some stuff you might stumble across in a nice business book or two. But I think there is something more as well. But we're going to start tonight. We're going to start with those basics, helpful things for us to consider as we as a church get ready to attempt great things. So let's start at the beginning. 
Do you remember Nehemiah's first act when he arrived back? The start of our reading tonight. What was the first thing he did? After an epic journey, right, thousands of miles through wilderness, he arrives, he has his three days to oh, breathe and recover. And then what's first on the agenda in verse 12? I set out during the night with a few others. He sets out during the night for his secret investigation. Seems slightly odd, doesn't it? But consider this. Nehemiah has been like half a world away. He's been living in Susa, the capital city of the Persian Empire. Now, perhaps he's read about Jerusalem. He will have read about it in his scriptures. Perhaps he's had people tell him stories about Jerusalem. Maybe he's even seen a, a map of Jerusalem but none of it is the same as actually seeing it for yourself. I mean, we all know this is true, right? Maps, descriptions, photos, they're not the same. They're no substitute for really being there in the end. Uh, I remember this. I went on a, a short-term mission trip to Uganda, and before I went, I spent quite a lot of time reading guidebooks to discover how it was I was going to die, uh, how many different creatures there were that were definitely going to kill me, looking at maps of like what the country would look like, but none of that, None of that was anything like actually being there, sitting on a hill overlooking Kabale and feeling the sights and the sounds and the, the, the different reality, smelling the, the warm earth. There's nothing like actually being there. So why is Nehemiah out scouting by night? Well, we well, had a plan like we talked about last week, right? He didn't just have a plan. He had a detailed plan we talked about last week. He imagined how much wood he was going to need. He imagined where he was going to live. But he is wise enough to know he needs to adapt his plan uh, in the light of reality. I mean, once he's actually been out and seen how steep the hill is to the east side, he's thinking, I, I, I don't know about that. Actually, my plan, I'm not sure that's going to work. He, he sees how far some of the blocks have fallen down into the valley below from the wall. He's thinking, I don't know whether we can do that. He, he eyes up how unstable the Tower of the Hundred looks and thinks, you know, we're going to have to work on that one too. Once he's gotten clear on the situation on the ground, then, then he can adapt his plan. And there's lots and lots of argument if you read commentators about where exactly all the landmarks mentioned in here are. But commentators think the description of the line of the city wall that we read through in chapter 3 probably shows a pretty substantial change from the original line of the city wall that probably Nehemiah adapted his plan having seen what was really going to happen having seen what the ground was like and the place. All very well having a plan, right? But Monkey the Elder uh, has this famous quote, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Nehemiah had to have a plan to share with the king, right? If he didn't have a plan and the king said, how long are you going to be? And he said, mm, I don't know. Well, that, that would have been the end of the story. He had to have a plan to start rolling. But he has to be ready to adapt that plan as well not just blessed on regardless. So we, you know, we should have plans, but we've got to be ready to adapt them as well. And if you think about for a moment why you might not adapt your plan, why you would refuse to adapt your plan, I think pretty much it always comes down to pride. The reason I don't need to adjust my plan is because it was perfect already. There was no better plan that could have been conceived, and I already knew everything there was to know. That's the reason why you're not going to change your plan. Arrogance and pride. Wise leaders adapt their plans. So it seems Nehemiah's first-hand research leads him to adapt his plans. That's what it looks like 
from the text. But still, how does he get everyone on board? How does he get them on board with an adapted plan so quickly? Uh, I think there's another thing to see here. I think it's just a bit less obvious. Uh, Look at verse 18 again with me. And do you notice what he says? It's a bit innocuous. It's kind of understated. He says, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said. He sort of glosses over what he said to the people there. He just gives us a vague impression, but consider what he must have told them in a bit more detail. So if he wants to tell them about how the hand of God is on him, if he wants to tell them about the king's answer, then he has to tell them the story of how he came to need the hand of God and how the king came to answer. He gets to tell. He gets to tell his story that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. He tells what he himself has done uh, to get us up to this point. Why does that matter? I think it shows. It shows them just how much skin he's got in the game, as it were. He's telling them what he's done to get to this far. He's telling them, actually, I put everything on the line to get here. He's telling them, actually, I had a cushy job in Susa. It was great. Lots of wine, plenty of time with the king, lived in a palace most of the time. Gave it all up. He's showing them how committed he himself is to this mission, how much he's willing to risk in pursuit of this mission, daring to ask the king. Why does it matter when this comes to getting people involved? Well, he is asking a lot from that cynical crowd. But he's not asking them to go any further than he has gone. He's asking a lot of the cynical crowd, but he's not asking them to risk more than he has already risked. He's asking a lot of the crowd, but he's not asking them to give up more than he has already given up. Uh, He's leading from the front, we might say, right? He's calling them to pursue a vision, which they can all see he is in. Uh, He's in it heart and soul. He's in it up to his neck. He's not asking them to go somewhere he hasn't been. He's calling them to follow him where he's already going. That's something that's really struck me as I've thought about this passage, the significance of leading the way in terms of taking risks, making sacrifices before thinking about calling other people to join you. You see, there are, there are lots of people who see things are wrong in our world and wish they were different. There are lots of people who have ideas for the way things maybe should be, people who will you know, post on Facebook about it and uh, people who will talk about it, read about it, go to conferences about it, wring our hands about it. There are lots of people like that, but there aren't so many people who will actually do something about it, Uh, particularly not when it involves cost uh, or risk, when it threatens our security and our comfort. But that's exactly what Nehemiah is showing them as he talks about the story that brought him to this place. I'm not asking you to go, he says, where I haven't been. So what do we learn from Nehemiah, right? Two things here. One, he adapts his plans in the light of reality. It's good common sense. That's something we should be really happy to embrace. Um, Two, he leads from the front. He calls people to join him in what he is already doing rather than trying to send them somewhere he hasn't gone. These are both good things to learn. And there are more things like this I could have pulled out from that passage too. 
right? He breaks this massive war work down into manageable segments, helping people engage with it. He gives people jobs that are important and significant to them. He says, build the wall next to your house, and they do. He lets them put their names on the wall when it's finished. You notice when he's recounting who's done what, it's not, and Nehemiah rebuilt the whole wall of the city. But we know who did what. There's more stuff to learn in here. But are any of these techniques enough to deliver such a remarkable turnaround? Are any of these sufficient to explain what happened here with these people who've been in the same situation for their entire lives, going from nothing to let's rebuild in a moment? I, I don't think so. Uh, they're good leadership, sure. I think the real reason Nehemiah succeeds uh, at leading the people into this epic project is because it's not his project at all. Uh, it's God's project. He just joined it. And Nehemiah recognizes this. If you look back at verse 12, he talks about what God had put in his heart to do for Jerusalem. This is, this is God's plan, not his plan. And just as the, the king embraces this crazy plan, through the gracious hand of God, I think we're seeing exactly the same thing here. The people embrace this crazy plan because the gracious hand of God is in it. The response of the people, I think, is just as much a miracle as the response of the king from last week. And if you look at the way Nehemiah talks to the early opposition that we read about, uh, in verse 20, he says, the God of heaven will give us success. Nehemiah's success doesn't come from great leadership uh, or good project management or great technique, uh, though there is nothing wrong with any of those things. I guess like I was arguing last week, I think they're actually essential. I've got this balance, this tension, this uh, paradox between human responsibility and God's sovereignty. Remember, a paradox, but true nonetheless. So I think this is necessary technique, necessary good leadership. It's great for us to learn these things, but it is not sufficient. If you know your Bibles, you might know Psalm 127. says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain, right? The psalmist tells us it is vain to labor in building unless the Lord is in it. But what if the Lord is building the house? Do you think the builders still need to work? No, the builders still need to work. It's just not in vain this way. Nehemiah's work is necessary. His skill is necessary and important. His technique, well, it matters. But success is ultimately rooted in the fact that this is God's project. And he's just brought Nehemiah into it. And he's brought Nehemiah in so Nehemiah, in turn, can bring other people into this project. So Nehemiah leads wisely. He does two techniques, even more in the passage. But ultimately, he succeeds at engaging everyone because this is God's project. All very interesting. Good to know. But like we do every week, we have to sit down and ask the question, so what? Right, what does this mean for you and me in the here and now? What difference should this make to how we go about our next week I want to make one more connection together, and Owen's talked about it already, because this, ultimately, like the whole of the Bible, is all about Jesus. 
Uh, it's all about Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the true and greater Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah leads people in God's great project to end the Jewish exile and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, Jesus leads God's greater project to end the garden exile, right, and build the new Jerusalem, that final and ultimate city of God, the city where once again God is gonna live among his people like he used to walk in the garden at the beginning. And Jesus leads us into God's greater project just like Nehemiah led the people into God's project. He leads us into God's project of saving a people for their good and for his glory. And we should join him in it since it is God's project and so it will succeed. But I want you to notice as well that Jesus is the ultimate leader. Right? We've been talking about leadership and management techniques and things here. Well, Jesus epitomizes leading from the front. Uh, in the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He gives up heaven like Nehemiah gave up Susa to lead his mission from the front. And when he calls the disciples, he says to them, follow me himself laying down the pattern. He doesn't ask them to go anywhere he's not been first himself. He doesn't ask them to give up anything he hasn't already given up. He doesn't ask them to risk anything more than he already risks, and he calls you and me in the same way, follow me. And he remains the perfect leader, uh, leading from the front. He tells us to love. How are we meant to love? In the same way that he loves. He tells us we are to serve in the what way? The same way that he served. He tells us we are to forgive. In the same way he has forgiven. And as he was sent, we're sent in the same way. God, through Jesus, leads us into his mission from the front. Okay, connection in place. Now can we see a bit more of what this might mean for you and me? Well, a couple of ways for you to think about this tonight. Here's the first one. Perhaps, perhaps tonight your life is a bit of a ruin like Jerusalem was. Uh, perhaps it's a, a disgrace to you, a bit like Jerusalem was a disgrace to these people. I think for you tonight, God wants to say that Jesus, the true and greater Nehemiah, has come to rebuild your life to God's glory. He wants to end the disgrace and reproach, and he set out to engage all his people in that project. And if you're sitting here tonight, then around you are many people sat who want to join in that project. We want to help you let Jesus rebuild your life. How does that start, right? That starts with recognizing him. That starts with recognizing who he is and bowing the knee to him as Lord, inviting him to come and begin work within you. If that's you, I mean, maybe you're like those cynical people thinking, well, I have tried this before and it doesn't work. I've tried this before and it's failed, but this is different. This is different because reinforcements have arrived from outside. Jesus is in the business of turning lives around, building them up no matter what state they're in. Maybe you have failed before, but this is different because Jesus has come to join you in it. And he does have the power. Uh, if that is you and God is speaking to you, please don't walk away from him as he speaks. Uh, you might not have forever to do that. Um, we would love to help you take that first step back towards him. There'll be 
uh, a team at the front afterwards to pray uh, with anyone who wants to. Tell them your story, and they'll join you in calling out to Jesus for you. But I guess for many of us tonight, we're going to call ourselves Christians, right? If you do, I wonder if, like, often in the Bible, you read yourself into the wrong place in this story. Do you imagine yourself a Nehemiah? Are you the hero come to rescue? Not that you brag about it. That's just kind of who you assumed you were when we read the story. Perhaps tonight God wants to challenge us to read ourselves as that cynical crowd instead. I perhaps, perhaps for you there was a glorious start to your Christian journey, right? A return from exile, a, a life transformed and renewed, but then like those people in Jerusalem, it only went so far and it's kind of petered out. And if you're honest, life's still pretty much a mess, bit of a ruin still. Some burned down parts here and there we don't like to talk about. Can I challenge you tonight not to settle for this? Uh, not to throw your hands up when you hear how Jesus describes your life ought to look and say, that is impossible. That will never happen. That wall has been down forever. Instead, we should recognize that Jesus, the master builder, is here. And he is ready to go to work on us by his spirit and that it is God's plan for us to be built up into the likeness of Christ. And so that is going to happen. This is going to succeed. Impossible as it might sound, right? Far-fetched as it might sound. Beyond you as it might sound, that wall is going up. It's a God plan. And that's why it's going to happen. And that's why it should make you and I stand up and say, yes, we will rebuild. We will rebuild this. Let us start. Let us start now. Feel like that could be you? Well, how could you make a start? Just do it. It's like rebuilding the wall. You know what needs to change, right? You know where the wall has fallen down. You can see where the block is. Most of the time, it is pretty obvious what is wrong with our lives and what needs to put right in our lives. Most of the time, that's pretty straightforward, like rebuilding a wall. The stone needs to go from there to here. The problem so much of the time is that it is hard, hot work doing it. That's the problem most of the time. You don't need a rocket scientist or a you know, super spiritual person to explain to you where your life is out of order. You just need to do the hard work to put it back. Today is the day to decide to begin that. Why not tell someone what's broken down? Why not share with somebody where the holes are in your life and ask them to help you put it right? This is God's plan. You can do it. We mustn't give in to cynicism or throw up our hands and say it's impossible. It is not impossible. God's spirit is alive and at work within you. It is not impossible for you to do what he has asked. One last way to apply the passage to us. Well, perhaps we can rightly read this after all as if we are a bit of a Nehemiah, but a lesser one. 
right? because God's project is rebuilding a whole city, not just a single patch of wall next to your house. And so I do want to close by challenging you to think a little bigger. God has called you into his project not just so your life is rebuilt, but so a whole city rises around you. We are to lead others into this great God project, right? Uh, Every one of us is called to be a leader in that sense. That's exactly what it means to make disciples, as we so often talk about. A disciple, every disciple is called to make disciples to lead others into following Jesus. And there are three things in this passage that help us as we think about how to do it. First, we've got to reject this cynicism that says, we have tried this before. I have tried that before. Maybe you have, right? And maybe it didn't work when you set out to make disciples. But you know what? There is no plan B. There is no cavalry coming to mop up for us. We have to put that cynicism aside and determine that we are going to get to work anyway because this is God's project. That's where the Second thing comes in, we can learn from Nehemiah, that wise leader, that we do need to adapt our plans. Like maybe you tried something before and maybe it didn't work, fine, but that doesn't mean that nothing at all ever will work. We just need to try something else. We can't throw up our hands and say, gosh, such hard ground here in Scotland. I guess we can't do anything after all. We'll not rebuild after all. Let's learn things. All right, let's try things to see what works and what doesn't, and let's learn things and try again. We'll adapt our plans and try again. And finally, if we want others to join us in this, which we do, if we want others to join us in this, we have to lead from the front a little bit more. We have to get a bit more skin in the game. I mean, half-hearted Christians are profoundly unconvincing to the world around us. When it seems like to everyone watching, our faith doesn't matter that much to us, doesn't mean that much to us, then... Why would they bother joining in? When it doesn't look like our faith makes that much difference to our lives or our plans or how we conduct ourselves, why would anyone else want that? If we can only lead other people where we have been, uh, if we can only call them to risk what we've risked, if we can only call them to go where we've gone, well, it is a good time to ask yourself honestly how far you could lead anyone. Has God taken you on a journey? Has he pushed you out of your comfort zone? Has he turned your life upside down like he did for Nehemiah? Cushy job to burn down city. If he has, that is a story to share, a story to use as you call other people into this. If you don't have a story like that, maybe it's time you did. We're going to pray. Lord God, thank you so much that your plans are perfect and that they are certainly going to happen. Lord, you have promised that we will be conformed to the likeness of Christ, and so it will be. Please call us to join you in that work. Lord, you promise that you will build your church, and so you will. 
please would you call us into that work? Lord, please might your word be powerful among us, uh, challenging us, calling us to reconsider ourselves, rediscover your greatness, to fall on your mercy and grace, and to be led again by you into your plans. Lord, we want to attempt great things for you, not sit comfy at home. So please would you help us to do that. For your glory. Amen.